Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Rambling Brews Podcast. This is episode 8. I am your host, Tim. And did somebody out there say something about getting fired up? (laughs) I mean, we've got an absolutely packed episode this week. I'd be remiss if I didn't start by mentioning that the Rambling Brews Podcast is grateful to have an interview with one of the most respected beat writers in the National Hockey League on today's episode, one of the best in the business for my money, Seth Rorabaugh, who covers the Pittsburgh Penguins, will be joining the podcast a little bit later, and I'm stoked for everyone to hear that interview, what an honor it was for me. Um, Also, in the last week, a lot has occurred in the world of sports. We had the man, the myth, the legend, Sidney Crosby, play his 1,000th NHL game. We had a prominent Russian NHL superstar take a leave of absence from his team due to some allegations brought forth against him by a former NHL player and a current KHL coach. We'll dive into that. And we are going to debut a new segment on the podcast titled Gambling Brews, where I'm going to tee everybody up a couple locks for the weekend that I think might just put a couple extra bones in your pocket. But first, as always, here on the Rambling Brews podcast, it's Beer 30. (sighs) Rocky Mountain Cold, baby. It'll never let you down. I did want to mention... I got a lot of positive feedback on my uh, score and rating for Dale's Pale Ale, and I wasn't bullshitting. It was a, a tremendous beer for an IPA and for a craft beer. Um, like I said, if I was at a place at a restaurant, a bar, uh, a buddy's place, wherever, and they didn't have domestic beers or mainly Coors Light, and they happened to have Dale's Pale Ale, I would drink that. So, you know, I, I thought... I wanted to potentially do this segment every episode, but, you know, I don't want it to go stale. Like, uh, I have people reaching out to me, which is banana lands to me, that people are reaching out to me with different beers to try. I mean, there's so many different craft beers out there, but beers, they're intrigued to hear about my uh, my score, and, and people want me to try these beers. So, um, But like I said, I, I don't want it to become stale. The old adage still remains true that how can I miss you if you won't go away? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to spread these beer reviews out. Uh, I'm going to keep drinking Coors Light, and I think sometimes... You know, it makes sense to do these beer reviews whenever I've got guests uh, on the podcast because you can do, you know, you you have two uh, different opinions, uh, two different taste preferences, beer preferences, things like that. So we're going to continue to do these uh, beer reviews, but we're going to space them out a little bit, not do them each week um, in order for them to not become stale. But please do keep sending the requests in. I got a lot in the pipeline. Um, You send them in. I'll try them. I'll line them up. I'll score them. And, uh, and and speaking of scoring, I think in the NHL this week, we really have to start with one of the biggest stories, um, one of the most bizarre stories in my 30 years of watching hockey and 30 years of living. Um, Artemi Panarin, one of the best young goal scorers and best young point getters in the NHL, um, is taking a leave of absence from the New York Rangers um, due to some allegations, as I mentioned in the intro, some allegations being levied against him. Um, by Andre Nazarov, a uh, former NHL player and current head coach of the KHL um, Continental Hockey League, for those who don't know, is the Russian League. Um, They have teams in Finland, they have teams in Latvia, teams in China and Russia, but it's basically second fiddle to the NHL. It's the second best professional hockey league um, in the world. But this guy uh, levying these allegations against Panarin is Andre Nazarov. He's the head coach of the KHL's Neftahimik team. 
Now, I'm not even going to try to pronounce Neftahemik's second name or their mascot or whatever it is. I'm not really sure how the Russian teams work, um, but Neftahemik is the team. I have no clue where that is in Russia, um, but he actually coached Artemi Panarin before Artemi Panarin jumped to the NHL from the KHL. So for those who don't know, Artemi Panarin, like I said, is one of the best players in the league. Uh, he played in the KHL um, up till I think he was 24, 25, and then made the jump to the NHL. Um, and he joined the Chicago Blackhawks. He lit it up with Patrick Kane. What a dynamic duo that was. And then for some strange reason, um, and a lot of GMs do this in, in various different sports, but Stan Bowman, the general manager of the Chicago Blackhawks, decided, you know what? I want to get the old band back together and see if we can rekindle the flame and get back to where we were in the promised land in the early part of the last decade. And he traded Artemi Panarin, uh, one of the brightest young superstars in the league, uh, to Columbus for Brandon Saad, a solid player, but a little bit uh, a little bit past his prime and certainly wasn't going to have the offensive um, in just in general impact that Artemi Panarin was going to have on the game. Um, and if we talked about before, you know, no real mainstream top end superstar is going to stay in Columbus. So Panarin, the first chance he got to skate out of Columbus, he did. And he joined the New York Rangers uh, last year in a big market, um, you know, playing great there. They've got a young nucleus and he's the leader face of the franchise. So they've got a bright future in New York with Panarin and those guys around him. But, uh, so it was it was definitely a shock for me to see this allegation come out that he was, you know, basically they said, you know, he's going to take a leave of absence due to these allegations. So I thought, man, this has to be bad. So I dug into it a little bit. And what's being alleged is, uh, like I said, Andre Nazarov, who coached um, Artemi Panarin back in the KHL, is alleging that uh, on December 11th, 2011, Artemi Panarin played a game. At the time, he was playing for the KHL team Vityaz, I think is how you pronounce it. Forgive me if I'm butchering it. Uh, but Nazarov was the coach then before he was at Neftahemik, and he had Panarin on his team, and they lost a game to Dynamo, which I believe is Dynamo Moscow. Now, granted, it's hard to keep track of the KHL teams, but I believe it's Dynamo Moscow, one of the better teams in the KHL. And uh, Vityaz, the team Panarin was on, and, and Nazarov was coaching, lost a game to them back in 2011. And after the game, uh, Panarin went to the hotel bar with some of his teammates, and Nazarov alleges that an incident occurred where Panarin um, sent an 18-year-old uh, female citizen of Latvia to the floor with several powerful blows, um, essentially um, alleging that Artemi Panarin assaulted a female, an 18-year-old female, back in 2011 while he was 19. Um, it also is alleged from Nazarov that there was a criminal case and a trial on this um, incident, and uh Panarin and his team and people around him paid 40,000 euros to the victim um, and to the police to clear Panarin and drop the charges. Um, so some of, you know, whenever I saw these allegations, I mean, these are very serious and you hope that these aren't true. Um, it's come out that, uh, you know, some of his teammates and people that were at the hotel bar and other people throughout the, uh, the country in Russia have basically said, you know, there's no way this happened. I was there. This is bullshit. And some people might think, you know, why would why would Nazarov uh, make this up? So, you know, I'm not trying to get whacked by somebody from, uh, you know, some, from Russia. So I'll tread lightly here. But uh, Nazarov is kind of known as a hothead. He's he's had a lot of players that have had complaints against him. Uh, there's video and pictures of him trying to leap over the glass in the KHL and beat fans with sticks. I mean, he's he's a bit of a loose cannon. Um, but 
the real the real uh, I guess depth of the story is that for those who don't know, um, Artemi Panarin has openly in in recent years has been very open and very strongly opposed to the Russian Federation government and mainly Vladimir Putin, who Nazarov considers Putin um, a very close friend. Um, so and, and Nazarov even so much so came out recently and basically said, you know, I think it was despicable what Artemi Panarin said about the Russian government and the Russian president. Um, you know, it's a disgrace and all these things. So you kind of have to wonder a little bit about his motives uh, to kind of come with his story uh, 10 years after the fact, if it did in fact occur. But he's alleging that it occurred 10 years ago. So what's the motivation there, I think, is what a lot of people are thinking. Um, Artemi Panarin has adamantly denied this. Um, so And also the New York Rangers have come out and they've released a statement. Now, this was a hammered down statement from the New York Rangers. I mean, I was not expecting it. You know, you expect them to come out and they back their they they back their guy and they say, hey, we're gonna wait till all the facts come out. We take this seriously. Some generic PR lawyer bullshit statement, right? That's not what the New York Rangers did. And there's some big words in this statement I'm gonna read. So I'm gonna put my West Virginia University degree uh, to the test here. But um the statement from the New York Rangers was quote Artemi vehemently and unequivocally nailed it, uh, denies any and all allegations in this fabricated story. This is clearly an intimidation tactic being used against him for being outspoken on recent political events. Artemi is obviously shaken and concerned and will take some time away from the team. The Rangers fully support Artemi and will work with him to identify the source of these unfounded allegations, close quote. So crazy. Like I said, that's a hammer drop by the uh, New York Rangers. They basically are coming out and saying that this is a political tactic and basically an intimidation tactic because how outspoken Artemi Panarin has been. And he and he has. He's been on uh, social media and he's been in support of the Russian, um, you know, the Russian government, basically their direct opposition um, in the in in support of the protests coming out against alleged human rights uh, violations and all kinds of things that have been uh you know, alleged to be uh, occurring at the hands of the Russian government. Um, and like I said, I want to trend lightly. I don't need the KGB showing up at my door. But, um, you know, this is a big story. It's a crazy story. Um, you know, Artemi Panarin, too, for those who don't know, has some family that still lives in Russia, um, his grandparents, uh, some distant family. And it's crazy to me, too, because this past summer he was in Russia. And I think he was posting some of this stuff while he was in Russia, which is crazy to me. Like, even some other uh, prominent NHL players. I know not everybody knows about Evgeny Malkin's story um, and some other prominent Russian players like, you know, Slava Fatisov and guys before him that kind of defected and paved the way for any uh, Russian players to join the NHL. But, you know, more recently, Evgeny Malkin, I mean, he was drafted by the Pittsburgh Penguins in 2004 and he was forced to uh, sign a contract with his team, Magnitogorsk in Russia, uh, his hometown team that he was going to stay there and and he didn't want to stay there. He had made his desires known. I want to go play in the NHL as a lot of Russian players did in the past. You know, it was a big no-no in Russia back in the day. They thought they were the best league in the world. They had the best hockey players in the world. And at times they did, especially in international play and Olympic play and, you know, world junior tournaments and world championship tournaments and things they dominated. But, you know, it was always in the back of the prominent Russian players' mind that they wanted to go test their skills out against the NHL players. Um, so Malkin basically told him, Hey, I want to go play in the NHL. They forced him to sign the contract and stay there. And if it wasn't for like a, 
Um, and, uh, you know, it just so happened that they were playing an international tournament where the Russian team had to play in Finland. And uh, his Malkin's uh, agents and teams and, and managers and all of those people close to him coordinated with the Pittsburgh Penguins to kind of get him to defect while in Finland and, and uh, go stay in a hotel room that was undisclosed that none of the Russian team uh, teammates or any of the uh, people running the team or in the organization knew about. And then he was on a, you know the first flight he could uh, out of Finland to get to uh, the United States. And you never know. He might not have ever been able to play in the in the National Hockey League. So it's always crazy to me that these guys like Malkin or, um, you know, Panarin in this case, are, you know, have such opposing views of you know the Russian government or they had to kind of defect to get away from the Russian government that they're willingly, you know, that they willingly go back. And I know they have family there and things like that, but you would think, you know, maybe they'd be able to move their family over here to the United States or Canada or wherever they want to go. Uh, but it's just crazy to me. So definitely something to keep an eye on. I really hope these allegations aren't true. Um, like I said, there's been people that have come out um, in Artemi Panarin's corner basically saying, hey, this is bullshit. This is a lie. This is a political tactic. Um, but, you know, it's crazy because you never know what could happen. So, you know, again, on behalf of the Rambling Bruce podcast, we definitely condemn any domestic violence, but I, I hope this is not the case. I hope this is just a bullshit allegation. I hope Panarin uh, gets past this, gets back on the ice, um, his family's safe, everything like that, uh, but definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, just an absolutely bizarre story. Um, on that note, man, I got to take a sip of beer. Also this week in the NHL, on a much brighter note, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, as I mentioned, Sidney Crosby played its 1,000th game in the NHL. Um, they had an outstanding tribute to Crosby before the game. Um, it absolutely sucked that there was no fans at the game. Um, I would have been, certainly I would have been in the building for that. Um, but it was also like on the other side of it, it was almost like a, a an intimate feel like with his teammates and the organization, his coaches, um, you know, staff, the PR people, all that stuff that have been close to Sid the last 16 years since he's been a, a, in Pittsburgh. Um, it was pretty cool for that. Um, they had, like I said, they had an awesome tribute video. It was sad that um, his family, um, his mom and dad. Uh, weren't able to make it, uh, Troy and Trina Crosby. And then his sister, Taylor Crosby, uh, wasn't able to make it because they're up in Canada and they live in Nova Scotia. Um, they could get into the United States, no problem, as we saw with Brian Burke, who came from Canada to be the Penguins' uh, president of hockey operations. He showed up the first day after he came to the United States, no quarantine or anything. But <laughs> but it's getting back into Canada, that's the problem. So they weren't able to make it, unfortunately. Um, and on the video tribute that they gave to him, you could tell, I think they even said it on the video that, you know, it was very difficult for them uh, to get through that. They were very emotional. They had to take a couple of takes to redo the, the video tribute to him. And they were talking about how it feels like just yesterday they were uh, visiting Manhattan and then ultimately going over to East Rutherford, New Jersey to watch Crosby's first game against the Devils back in November of 2005. Um, they had, uh, Steve Eiserman, the legend, the NHL hall of famer, uh, one of the best players of all time. The, uh, the old captain of the Detroit Red Wings won a couple Stanley cups. And for those who don't know that Sidney Crosby's idol, um, his favorite NHL player of all time, right up there with Mario Lemieux. And I know we can get it, we can get to this in a second, but I wanted to point out that's more of the reason why I know Sidney Crosby's not leaving Pittsburgh, why he's going to stay a penguin for the rest of his life. And he will, uh, retire as a Pittsburgh penguin. Um, because his idols, Mario Lemieux and Steve Eisenman, were two guys that stayed with the same team. They were loyal to the same franchise. They won there. Uh, they delivered on all the promises that, you know, and all the expectations. Um, 
you know, there's something to be said about that. Now, I'm not taking anything away from a guy like Wayne Gretzky, you know, but Wayne Gretzky did play for five NHL teams. So, like, there's something to be said, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people's opinion for guys that stay loyal to the same franchise and they play there their whole career and they deliver. Um, you know, I don't want to knock anybody, but there's guys like Ray Bork, who's an outstanding defenseman, although, you know, I wasn't really uh, cognizant of this because I was still two or three years old when this was happening, but I've seen videos of Mario Lemieux just, you know, twisting Ray Bork into the ice like a drill bit, as Mark Madden would say here in Pittsburgh. Um, but he was one of the best defensemen in the league. He's played 21 years in Boston and really could never get the job done. It wasn't necessarily all his fault, um, but he kind of pimped himself out the last year. He wanted to go to Philadelphia, ultimately was traded to Colorado, and he, he wasn't like a, a huge piece of the puzzle in 2001, but he ultimately uh, won the Stanley Cup there, and we've talked about that moment on the podcast before of Joe Sackett passing him the cup as one of the best moments in NHL history. But again, like you kind of like, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, he, he won the Stanley Cup, you're happy for him, but if you're a fan of the Boston Bruins, you wish Ray Bork would have stayed his whole career and, um, you know, with Iserman and Mario Lemieux as his idols, I see no chance Sidney Crosby leaves and that further solidifies my, you know, my opinion on it. Um, but it was great to see Iserman and, uh, they showed a bunch of Crosby highlights and goals throughout the years and from his, you know, hundredth game to 200th game all the way up to his a thousandth game. Um, just a, a really remarkable, um, tribute to him. And, you know, it, 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 it was crazy because, you know, at the time the tribute was happening, um, somebody decided to start cutting onions in my basement. And, you know, it was <laughs> it was crazy. You can make fun of me all you want, but I definitely teared up a little bit. I mean, I, I've been a Penguins fan my entire life, um, you know, and I really caught the tail end of Mario Lemieux's dominance. You know, in 1997, when he retired the first time, I was six years old. Um, so, you know, I, I watched it when I was a kid with my grandfather and, and my dad, and my uncle, and we had, you know, tickets to a lot of the games and we would go, but I really didn't appreciate it uh, because I was just so young. And then Lemieux came back in 2000, he was dominant, but he wasn't quite the same player he was. And then Crosby, the savior came and, you know, I really, I really have, I really owe him like, you know, a lot of my sports, um, fandom, like happiness over the last 15, 16 years, has been attributable to the dominance that Sidney Crosby's brought to the team, the professionalism he's delivered in every single sense of the word, um, along with some other guys on the team. But it was definitely emotional uh, for sure. Uh, and like I said, you can chirp me all you want, but you know that that's how I felt. And they even showed on the on the broadcast. Um, Evgeny Malkin was tearing up a little bit. I mean, these guys are brothers, Crosby, Malkin, Latang. They grew up together. They showed up in the National Hockey League, especially for Malkin, coming from a completely different, like, foreign land, doesn't even speak the language. Um, and even Latang, I mean, he, he mostly spoke French when he came in. Um, but those guys are brothers. They've grown up together since 2005, 2006, and then Malkin coming in 2007. They've, uh, they've won together. They've lost together, high times, low times. So it was definitely emotional to see that. Um, as part of the pregame ceremony, it was really cool that uh, they, they presented a couple gifts. They mentioned that the, the team bought uh, a presidential Rolex for Sidney Crosby, um, and they presented it to him in the locker room prior to the game. So that's awesome. For those who don't know, usually uh, when a guy plays his, his 1,000th game in the NHL, the, the whatever team he's on, the teammates all chip in and buy him a nice gift. Um so they got Rolly, or <laughs> they got Crosby a uh, a presidential Rolly. 
so that's pretty sick. And then uh, whenever they had the actual ceremony, the organization and the league presented uh, Crosby with a couple of gifts. The organization first gave Crosby a picture. It was him holding the Stanley Cup, which was really cool. I think it's called a mosaic, if I'm not uh, mistaken. But basically, it's a picture that's formed by you know many other pictures, like little tiny pictures. So they took one picture from each of his 1,000 games in the NHL, and they made a mosaic that kind of looked like him holding up the Stanley Cup, which was badass. Uh, pretty awesome. And then, uh, you know, the silver stick, the traditional silver stick that most players get um, from their organization for playing a thousand games, which is engraved. And they took pictures out there. It was a great ceremony. Awesome. The only thing I wish is like, you know, the fans and and myself included could have been in the building. Um, But you know, it was really awesome. And like, and before we get into the game a little bit, it was crazy because in the warm up. So for those who don't know about Sidney Crosby, um, he's very regimented. He has so many superstitions. Um, there's never going to be um, any difficulty determining where Sidney Crosby is at a certain time uh, before uh, a game in the NHL. It could be, you know, he's eating his PB&J sandwich. Uh, I think he eats chicken parmesan before every game. Uh, he's either running on the treadmill, he's taping his sticks, whatever the case is. So he's very regimented, but it was pretty cool whenever he, they went out for the uh, – they went out for pregame warmups, and every player on the team was wearing the 87 jersey to pay homage to Crosby. And then uh, at, at the five-minute mark, every game, uh, five minutes before the warmup is over and the, Sam- the Zamboni comes out to cut the ice, um, Sidney Crosby kind of over the red line, but just shy of the blue line on the side of the ice, his team's warming up. He bends down and, and ties his skates. He unties them and reties his skates every game. So if you've ever been to a Penguins game or you're ever going to go to a Penguins game when Crosby's playing in the future, take a look at that. Um, he will do it every single game right after he stick handles through the logo um, at center ice in PPG Paints Arena. It's always the McDonald's logo. I know uh, famous in Detroit's the Jimmy John's logo. Whatever the logos are at uh, center ice, he, he stick handles around in the same spot every game. But in this case, um, all the players on the team at the five-minute mark, <laughs> they stopped and uh, – bent down on the ice no matter where they were and they started tying their skates just like Sid did and he got a big chuckle out of them it was awesome it's just crazy because like so many guys have so many um superstitions in the NHL like uh, I don't want to get sidetracked from Crosby too much here as we're talking about him but uh the other night I saw the New York Rangers were playing the Boston Bruins uh Mika Zibanejad uh the centerman for the Rangers and Brad Marchand uh the winger for the Boston Bruins they like to be the last guy on the ice apparently um, when warmups is over. So it was crazy. Like the horn blew, the Zamboni's trying to come out on the ice. And mind you, they only have a certain amount of time before the game's about to start. So they got to get out there and cut the ice. And the ice crew goes out, make sure the moorings are okay on the goals and everything like that. Um, making sure the, the nets are okay and there's no you know ruts in the ice and stuff like that. So it was crazy because like Marchand and uh, Zabinajad are just standing there looking at each other. Now they're in Madison Square Garden. So it's not like new arenas where the locker rooms are right behind the bench. But so they're at the opposite ends of the rink, right? And it's hilarious. And they're just staring at each other, waiting for the first one to uh, go off the ice so the next one can go off, right? And um, finally, it's been like five, six, seven, eight minutes, somewhere in there. It's been a long time. And the cameras are on them the whole time. It was crazy. I caught this on the NHL network. Um, so Marshawn basically like gives Zabinajad the signal, like, you want to rock, paper, scissors for it? <laughs> so like these grown men, these grown professional hockey players, 
Incredible. They play rock, paper, scissors for it. Uh, Zabenajad ultimately wins. I think it was best two out of three. Ultimately wins. Um, and Marshawn, I thought he was going to be a rat and just be like, nope, fuck it. I'm staying here. I'm Marshawn. You know, you're going on first. But, you know, he accepted his defeat in the rock, paper, scissors game and he went off. So it's pretty crazy how these guys in the NHL just have so many um, superstitions and it's it's incredible. I mean, like Evgeny Malkin, uh, and I know I keep harping on Penguins things here, but that's what I know. I've been to so many Penguin games in my day. Um, but Evgeny Malkin, he always waits. Uh, he stands right at the crease at the goal, right when the horn goes off, waits for the other team's uh, last player to go off and, and his team uh, to clear the ice. And then... He takes a puck, he shoots it into the net from just outside the crease, and then the Penguins trainer comes off the bench and stands right by the, the face-off dot at the blue line in front of the Penguins bench, and uh, Malkin takes another puck and shoots like a nice little saucer pass over and hits the trainer in the foot, and then he goes off the ice. So it's pretty crazy like how these guys just have ridiculous... Um, you know, superstitions and, and regimens and routines and things like that. Um, you know, and Sidney Crosby is no different. So it was awesome to see his teammates kind of just pay homage to him and get a chuckle out of Crosby by, you know, stopping and tying their skates and kind of mimicking his, his warm-up routine a little bit. Um, you know, getting to the game, the Penguins, they played great. I mean, they've been playing great as of late, but you had to know Crosby was going to uh, show up on the score sheet. Um, he had two assists. I actually had a bet um, through Barstool Sportsbook that uh, Crosby would score a goal and the Penguins would win. Unfortunately, he didn't score, but whatever. The Penguins won. He had two assists. Uh, Chris Letang scored two goals. Appears to be, um, you know, trending upwards in his play, playing better defensively, contributing a little bit offensively. The power play is clicking. Uh, they're playing a little bit better. And in the crease, uh, Tristan Jari, he, he's returning back to his all-star form he was at last year. I mean, he's 4-1 in his last five starts with a .936 save percentage. So 93.6% of the shots he faces um, that are on goal, he's getting a save on them. So that's a recipe, uh, recipe for success. And uh, like I said last week, I mean, the uh, scoring is up around the league. I mean, the the Penguins are no different. I mean, they've they've been giving up a lot of goals early on in the season, but so has every other team. So it appears that Jari's getting his confidence back. He's getting his swagger back. He's uh, coming into his own a little bit, playing better. The team's playing better in front of him. The confidence, uh, when the goaltender is playing well and he's playing confident, it really resonates through the rest of the team. And you can tell the last couple of games, the Penguins have just been playing great. Uh, tonight, while I'm recording this, they actually just beat the Washington Capitals in overtime uh, for the fourth time out of five tries this year. So that's a big test for the Penguins. I mean, they've the, the Capitals are one of the better teams um, in the East Division, and the Penguins have been able to beat them four out of five this year. So that's that's nothing to snuff at. I mean, they they've been playing great, and I think uh, Boston's the best team in the East Division right now. The way they've been playing and their record would indicate that. Um, but I think there's no reason the Penguins can't be second in the division or at least battle for the first spot. Uh, there's a lot of teams that are good in this division: Washington, New York, uh, the New York Islanders, I should say, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. I mean. It's going to be an absolute battle, but it looks like the Penguins are trending upwards. And, you know, they have a little bit of uh, defensive misplays that they need to correct a little bit. They've been giving up giving up a lot of odd man rushes. Um, that's been a, a consistent problem in the last couple of years, but they play a run and gun style. Um, so they're going to give up chances. And that's where you need Tristan Jari to show up like he has been for the last five games, as I mentioned. And, um, you know, Cody Ceci and Mike Matheson, two big question marks coming into the season. Um, they were acquired by the previous regime and Jim Rutherford and, uh, you know, they've been playing great 
Twitter has been very quiet on uh, Cody Cece and Mike Matheson's case. Um, all the Twitter jabronis out there that are roasting everybody after every goal allowed, like you're supposed to shut out every team in the NHL. They've been awfully quiet uh, with regard to Cody Cece and uh, Mike Matheson. And, and it, I'm of the belief that if you watch like uh, bottom pair defensemen like Matheson and CCR, um, you know, if, if they're not mentioned by the announcer on the broadcast or you can't see them making just a horrendous play, you know, they're kind of just flying under the radar. They're typically playing a great game. So uh, that's what CeCe and Matheson have been doing, and Matheson's even been contributing on the score sheet. I uh, got a couple goals the last couple games, skating well, uh, you know, really playing a vital role in the Penguins' resurgence here in the last week or so, so hopefully they can keep it going. Uh, last thing I wanted to mention about the Penguins right now is um, uh, Sidney Crosby. You know, he came out basically, and as I talked about earlier with his idols being Lemieux and Iserman, he came out and addressed Darren Drager's rumor uh, that he potentially would be entertaining a trade offer, and he came out basically shut that down, as I predicted he would, and as I knew he would. Uh, he came out and said, you know, nothing's changed in my opinion. I love the city of Pittsburgh. I love playing here. I want to play here my entire career. So book it. No fucking chance that he leaves Pittsburgh um, there's no way I'm trying to think of like a ridiculous bet that I can make with somebody, uh, one of the rambling brews, uh, podcast listeners or anybody out there that wants to bet me that Crosby's going to leave. We'll come up with something, but I, I guarantee it. I, as the rock would say in WWF back in the day, I guarantee he will be a Pittsburgh penguin for his entire career. Um, so, you know, speaking of the Pittsburgh penguins, I think, you know, right now, especially with Crosby's 1,000th game and the great article he wrote um, this past week in the Tribune Review, uh, I think it's a perfect time to send it over to an honor of an interview for me and a, and a great interview. I hope you guys enjoy it. We're going to send it over to Seth Rorabaugh now. Ladies and gentlemen, it's an honor and a privilege for me as an avid hockey fan to welcome our next guest on the Rambling Brews podcast. This man created one of the most unique, entertaining, and influential hockey blogs on the internet, Empty Netters, which is where I discovered his work and became a fan of his hockey coverage. He's written for mainstay newspapers in the city of Pittsburgh for many years. He's worked for The Athletic and now currently writes for Trib Total Media covering the Pittsburgh Penguins. He's covered multiple Stanley Cup finals, outdoor games, generational talents. He's a member of the Professional Hockey Writers Association and has earned the ability to vote on NHL awards at the end of each season. I could go on and on. I'm so excited to welcome Seth Rorabaugh to the Rambling Brews podcast. Welcome, sir. Thank you for taking the time. How's it going? Dude, I'm, it's going well after that hype. Man, well, I didn't even know I had all that stuff on my resume, and here you are. You were really prepared, man. Uh, very kind of you, Tim, and I appreciate you bringing me on. Yeah, for sure. You know, I did a little research, but I have been, you know, following your blog since I think it was 2007, right? When you started it. Um, yeah, February so, of 07. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so we can get into that a little bit. Uh, but yeah, no, thank you very much for, for coming on. Uh, the first question I usually ask uh, to the guests here, staying true to form on the Rambling Brews uh, name here, but are you a beer guy? And if so, you know, what's your go to beer? Uh, it's probably more seasonal. Uh, yes, I do enjoy beer every once in a while. But when, and when I say it's seasonal, it's more that it's the off season maybe when I enjoy more beers than maybe in season. So uh, in the summer, you know, I tend to have, you know, hang out by the lake, by the campfire, things like that. Enjoy a couple of land sharks. Uh, and uh, that's generally a, a good portion of how my summer is spent in season. It's a little bit more difficult to be as social, I guess, and, you know, go out uh, socially and have a couple of drinks here and there. But uh, in the winter, I tend to maybe, uh, you know, go with a Guinness. It's uh, maybe kind of a cliche drink, but it's a, uh, it's good, good hearty brew for uh, I think those cold winter months. 
Oh, for sure. I can respect that. I like a good land shark, especially uh, in the summertime. You know, it's it's nice to just have a cool, refreshing beer, maybe uh, hanging out. And for you in the off season, not covering hockey when it's not going on there in the summer, it's it's probably nice just laying back, relaxing. So I can respect that. I'm not a big Guinness guy. Um, I know we, we talked about, um, you know, off the air a little bit uh, when we were just connecting that, you know, you, you mentioned you're not a beer snob and you, you weren't sure like what I was um, going to talk about in terms of beers and you didn't know much about hops and all that stuff. And like that was music to my ears because I'm not <laughs> I'm the furthest thing from a beer snob. I kind of pride myself on this podcast that I'm kind of sticking up for the guy like myself that likes Coors Light and likes domestic beers. I don't have a problem with those other beers, but I just don't like the people that are just like looking at you or look down on you when you order just a typical domestic you know, standard beer. So that was music to my ears when you said that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll confess, I probably don't uh, go with a general, a generic domestic beer. And if that's a, I don't mean that to be a disparaging term. I, <laughs> I, I, do, I do tend to like have some things that, you know, maybe have a little bit more flavor than maybe, a, you know, you're running the meal beer there. But um, at the same time, too, when people say, I'm drinking this, you know, micro brew from Albuquerque with, that has, you know, seasoning from, you know, the, the <laughs> fields of, you know, Nebraska or whatever, like you get too involved in that, that you, you kind of lose me. So, uh, uh, hey, but hey, we all like what we like. Uh, exactly. There's no sense in uh, putting people down for what they like. So yeah, exactly. That's the thing. I don't want to sound like I'm putting them down. I'm just kind of standing up for people like me that just you know aren't aren't beer snobs. That that's it. But um, you know, I wanted to get that get that response from you. What kind of beer you like? So that was great. Um, I did want to touch um, on you growing up, like in the in the '80s and '90s. Um, when did you fall in love with the game of hockey? Like, did you play hockey? Did you watch? Uh, was it like the Lemieux era? Um, you know, when did you fall in love with the game? Um, 1991, you know, I think like a lot of people, that's when the Penguins won the first Stanley Cup. Uh, I was in sixth grade at the time, and uh, that was such a, a huge momentous occasion when they won the Stanley Cup for the first time. And, uh, you know, and, you know, maybe a lot of other people, you know, maybe were a little bit more into it when Mario Lemieux came, came on board in 84. But for me, it really started in 1991 when, when all that happened and just all that hype and just uh, the fact that that team was so loaded with so many all-stars and Hall of Famers, you know, Mario Lemieux, Joe Mullen, Brian Trottier, and you guys are all stars like, you know, Kevin Stevens and some others, Ron Francis, uh, Yarmer Yager. Um, that's really what kind of got me connected there and got me into hockey. And like I, said, I think there's a lot of people in my age group. And, and for the record, I'm 41. Um, there's a lot of people in my age group that, you know, I, I think that's really maybe the flashpoint when, you know, they really got into hockey here in Pittsburgh or Western Pennsylvania. So um, now I, always, I trace so much of, you know, my connection to hockey to that 91 team. And just just how new and you know unique of a feeling that was for so many people that did care about hockey uh, at that time in Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania back in the spring of 1991. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. I know uh, a bunch of people, um, you know, like you said, in that age group that that's kind of when the Penguins arrived. I mean, they knew they were going to be potentially good whenever they got uh, Lemieux in 84. And then they had a couple trades uh, in the late 80s with some of the outstanding seasons Lemieux had as well. But that's really when they arrived in, in on the national scene and they were going to be a, a dominant team. And like you mentioned, all those all-stars, that was a crazy era. You know, up up until, what, 2005, right after the lockout, the first year with Crosby here, they, there wasn't a salary cap. So it was crazy. You could have, and look, like the Red Wings and stuff in the, in the early 2000s, they had you know, seven, eight Hall of Famers on the team. It was crazy that 91 team, Yarmir Yager, I think, was on the third line. So I know he was a rookie but or in his second year, but, like, <laughs> that's just crazy. Even jumping a couple of years uh, years ahead, the 92-93 team, which, you know, kind of tragic, I guess, in a way, since they got knocked out by the Islanders in the second round. But um, that's arguably the greatest team in Penguin history in terms of regular season play. They had four 100-point scores. Uh, I think Yarmir Yager had, like, something like 80-some points. And he was, like, fifth or sixth on the team in scoring that year. So... 
Um, very different era of hockey, but uh, it was very exciting and very fun. And um, I'm not sure you'd see a team stacked up like that anymore, uh, as you mentioned with the salary cap. The Colorado Avalanche kind of were like that for a little bit there too, I think. But um, no, that was a that was a very unique collection of talent that the Penguins were able to amass for sure. Um, and, and I don't think uh, I don't think you're going to see four hundred point players on the same team anytime soon. Uh, you it gets close with McDavid and Drysaitel up in Edmonton. Yeah. Um, but I don't think you, we're going to see that anytime soon, especially like we said with the salary cap. So that's interesting. Um, I, I was really interested to see, you know, how you got into the game, um, in, into hockey. Um, when you were younger, I guess, what made you want to pursue uh, a career in journalism, mainly sports journalism? And did you know that from a young age or was it kind of just like when you got to college? I think maybe like eighth or ninth grade, I kind of, I was taking some English classes, you know, standard English classes in, in, in high school, junior high and then in the high school. And I think at some point I kind of realized I kind of had a, an affinity for writing and, and things like that. I, I don't know if I necessarily thought, oh, sports journalism, but um, I was a sports nut. I think like a lot of, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of boys my age and stuff like that. And um, maybe that was just a connection. And I took some journalism classes in high school and was part of the school paper. Uh, Norwin High School, the Night Crier, shout out, shout out to them. Um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, and uh, and maybe, so maybe some like 10th or 11th grade, I kind of realized this is maybe something I wanted to pursue. So. I uh, went to college, went to Point Park uh, College. It's now Point Park University, so that tells you how old I am. Um, <laughs> and, and that's, you know, you don't, like, Point Park is not a school where you go to discover yourself and just, you know, try to figure out what you want. Uh, that's a school where, you know, frankly, only at the time, at least, you know, only maybe a handful of the degrees were really worthwhile there. And uh, journalism was one of them. And um, that's why I kind of centered on that on that school and wanted to go there. And, um and, uh, you know, it's it's a school that just pumps out a lot of good journalists, broadcast, radio, television, print, et cetera. So um, like I, said, I think I, I, I was I kind of centered on, on Point Park just based on that reason. And uh, I got to give you know, credit to my parents for really kind of, you know, you know, pulling the, the strings financially to make that avail, make that possible for me. But um, and from that point on, you know, it, you know, my former employer, the Post-Gazette, that was a they were literally like two blocks down the street from me. So, uh, at point park. So I was able to kind of get a job down there just answering phones on Friday nights for high school football, taking box scores, oh, wow. things like that. And, um, after about two years of that, that eventually led to a kind of like a, a full-time job on the desk, on the night desk there. So, and from that point on, you know, kind of moving up the ladder in terms of writing, writing and things like that. So, um, I, I, I had a pretty good idea if I would say early on that I wanted to get in the business. I just didn't know necessarily the path, I guess, but, um, I, I think for the most part, the path worked out pretty well. Yeah, I certainly did. I, I would say so. I mean, you definitely sound like you, you, you certainly paid your dues and, um, you know, went through school and that you, like you said, it seems like almost everybody that ends up on like Penn's TV or on local news here in the city of Pittsburgh, um, a lot of them went to Point Park University. So that's a, you know, a tribute to that, um, university. They do a great job for preparing people to get jobs. And, um, so that's pretty awesome. Uh, when you first came out of school though, like when you, when you did get to the, um, those writing jobs that you mentioned, um, I guess, what were you covering? Were you, did you start out covering sports or were there other types of, um, yeah, news areas that you were, you were writing about and covering? And it was sports. I mean, I was still in college uh, when I got hired to the Post Gazette full time. So, wow. Um, uh, and I was, for the most part, working on the desk. Uh, um, if you ever look at an old sports section back when you know, newspapers still maybe had you know a few more pages to them and they weren't you know razor thin as they maybe are now, um, <laughs> you could look at the baseball box score page, and that stuff's called agate. A G A T E. Um, that's what I did. I lo- I did a lot of uh, agate. You know, typing up the box scores or. In this case, you know, for something like that, you, you kind of cut and paste it off the Associated Press wire 
and you put it into like a layout uh, spread, uh, you know, program uh, for the pages and stuff like that. So, um, and that's that's stuff like box scores, standings, you know, just simple scores from um, the local baseball league, things like that, high school sports. So um, that's really how I got a lot of my start there. And then I also dabbled in like covering high school sports or uh, small college sports at the time too, uh, you know, when I had free time from my main duties there. So, um, yeah, like I, said, I think like a lot of people in the area, I mean, you, you, you learn how to do the job covering high school sports and, uh, you learn on, you know, how to call up high school coaches and, you know, figure out what, what their quarterback's doing or what their point guard's doing. Um, again, I don't, I don't think that's the path for every single person that gets into sports journalism, but I think that's probably the most common one. And, uh, that's how you really learn how to, how to be a reporter, how to ask questions uh, you know, try to write on deadline, things like that. So, um, for me that in terms of just actual writing, uh, that's kind of how my start was. And you know, I don't think it's any different than most people, but, uh, um, that, that's how I got started. Yeah. Uh, I think you're exactly right, especially in this area in Western Pennsylvania, how big high school football is and it, how it was in the past and still is. I mean, um, I'm 30, so I've been out of school for, for out of high school for a while. So, uh, I don't know if it's still like, you know, super big, but I know, you know, it, it's always, traditionally been a pretty big uh sport in this area so definitely a good place to start for sure um if i can if i can interject there i, I, mean, sure. I can tell you it's still very big and from my current employer the, the pittsburgh tribune review um that's a big driver for us in terms of you know, advertising and uh you know traffic and, and you know just clicks and just just general engagement with the readers is is high school sports and you know my company's made a very good investment in uh covering that on various platforms, whether it's print, uh, radio broadcasting or, or um, television broadcasting, albeit all over kind of like streaming platforms and things like that. But um, still very big. And, 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 and again, just speaking from my current employer, it's still a, a pretty significant uh, driver for us on a lot of fronts. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you, you did point out a note um, that you mentioned there in the last uh, thing you said where, you know, you're kind of learning whenever you were covering high, high school sports, you're kind of learning you know, how to meet deadlines and things like that and right on deadline. And I think that's always so interesting to me, like how you guys go like in your current job now and like the, the other writers and other sports, you know, you're, you're up till nine, 10 watching um, the game because the game's not over yet. And then you guys have the story out so quick and like, they're just well-written and it's a, it's a true talent. I, I've always wondered like, you know, how late they have to stay up. You guys have to stay up and things like that. And, you know, cause I'm me, I've, I'm like the complete opposite. Like when I was in college and I was writing papers, it would take me hours. Like I'd finally get going, but I'm like a kind of guy that has to, I have to like perfect the intro first and then like do it in order. I can't, I can like jot notes down about ideas on what I want to write, but it's very like, I, I don't know. It's, it's weird to explain. So I was always just blown away by how uh, reporters like yourself and, and writers are able to, um, you know, so quickly just write what happened in the game. And cause you guys got to go down after the game and get your quotes from the players and coaches and all that stuff too. So, uh, you know, I always just thought that was so impressive. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something you have to figure out how to do over time. It, it's not like, you know, you can take a college course and, and figure it out. You kind of have right. to do it in a practical uh, setting and, um, and, you know, for, yeah, I'll go through, you know, for instance, you know, we're recording this on Wednesday, I guess here and uh, on Tuesday night, the Penguins played an overtime game. And um, by the time I was, I pretty much had most of my story written. Uh, I just, you know, was trying to figure out who won the game uh, when, you know, <laughs> the last nine minutes of regulation. And then uh, they go to overtime. So I, I just I had kind of two different leads to my story written. Um, and I, yeah, I had some of the kind of particulars kind of, you know, open ended, I guess, towards the end of the story. And I'm just sitting there waiting for this game to end. And. Uh, you know, Kasperi Kapanen 
gets the goal, and or right away, I'm 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 cutting out the lead that's not going to be good. I'm putting in the lead that is going to be good. Then I'm putting down, you know, what what Casper Kapanen did in the last paragraph, and I think I got my story filed by nine forty four, and I have a deadline at nine forty five. Oh, so wow. I was really cutting right, it. Yeah, cutting there. it close. <laughs> yeah. So um, when people ask me, "Oh, you're going to the penalty game? Who are you rooting for tonight?" You know, like you know, I tell them I'm rooting for regulation. Yeah. Um, I don't want an overtime. I don't want a shootout. I don't want any sort of delays for you know the glass breaking or a player getting injured. <laughs> I just want the game to be over. In you're rooting for a blowout. Game. It's like five nothing in the first. Yeah. Game. You know, you're one, <laughs> I mean, I'm not rooting for the Penguins or against them. I just rooting for a very easy story to write and. Um, just for you know my nerves and for the sake of our uh, our copy editors on the desk, you know, just so I can get them something in into the office that's halfway legible and uh, something easy for them to edit and put on the put on the layout spread and uh, get get you know put down to the printers and out on the truck. So um, it's again, it's something that you have to figure out over time. Uh, it takes you know again, you you don't, you don't just you know come out of journalism school know how to do that. You, it takes some time and. Um, you know, you, you can learn how to do that, you know, asking, you know, high school football coaches, you know, what was up with, uh, uh their defense there or things like right. that. So, um, in this day and age too, it's a, it's a little bit easier, I would say actually, cause I don't have to physically run to the, with, with the COVID protocols, obviously I don't have to go to the locker room, right? You know, they don't have any sort of access right now. So everything's kind of set up on video chat so you can do it right there. And, uh, you know, you know, in a physical sense, I mean, it's easier just to kind of, you know, type up a real quick quote as they're typing and, and jam it into your, your story, your next write through for the later editions of the paper. So, um, in that sense right now, it's actually kind of easy. Uh, uh, but under normal circumstances, it's a, it's a very stressful, but at the same time, very thrilling kind of, uh, 15 minutes window or so you have to try to, you know, file your story and get it in on time. Yeah. That, like I said, that's, that's impressive. And it's just like anything else, uh, you know, you, you just learn as you, you go and you kind of get more experience with it. I know um, I've heard a story where Bob McKenzie, um, the Bob father up in Canada, he basically, you know, he said, in the, I think it was like the 93 final when the Kings were playing Montreal, uh, or sorry, Kings were playing uh, Toronto in the conference final. And uh, he had like two stories written. And I that's like the first I had heard that. He, he kind of had two stories. And then depending on the outcome is the story he was going to go with. So it's funny you say that, um, you know, th- that you guys have to kind of like have two stories prepared. So it's, it's even harder than I thought of initially. So <laughs> it, it, it's not even necessarily like two stories. It's like just two first lead paragraphs to your story. Maybe that, and I, I can't speak for what Bob McKenzie was maybe referring specifically there, but like, for instance, like again, to retract my earlier point, I had two different leads uh, ready to go uh, for that game on Tuesday uh, against the Washington Capitals, uh, depending on how things had turned out. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you, it's so much of the job really is a lot of ways is preparation you know? and, um, you know, again, just being prepared to, to have, you know, outcome a or outcome B or outcome C through Z happen, uh, really can make the job a lot easier. Yeah. And like, just to piggyback on what I said about, um, Bob McKenzie's article, I think he was writing, he had like a piece coming out that uh, Gretzky wasn't playing very well. And I think he actually went with the quote that, uh, Gretzky's playing like he has a piano on his back and it led to a lot of controversy <laughs> up in Canada with and Gretzky was very upset but he was talking about that he was just waiting to see okay I'm going to write this article if the Kings uh, lose and Gretzky doesn't play well but if you know Gretzky comes out and has a hat trick and they win the game obviously you can't say that so um, that's kind of what I was getting at but I, I did what you want to point or turn to um, you know who are, who are some of your biggest influences in your career? It could be from a journalism perspective or a radio perspective or really anybody. I, I'm curious to know who your biggest influences are. 
Well, a guy I worked with a lot at the Post Gazette was Dave Molinari. Um, mm-hmm. and Dave's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He's been doing this uh, for close to forty some years or so. I, I really um, I look at him as a mentor, and there's been a lot of people kind of around the beat and around the city that really will, will tell you the same thing. Um, just as a, a great kind of exurbic wit to him, uh, and it shows yeah, up. His in tweets the are great. His tweets. Yeah, are great. yeah. I, I, <laughs> I always, you know, I always kind of, you know, have, you know, twit, you know, tweets that are kind of along that, those lines. But um, I, I always say I'm kind of, I'm, I'm only playing for second place behind Dave in that, in that regard. So um, the way he writes, uh, you know, and just uh, the, the professionalism he goes about with his job, uh, and just in general the way he tr- maybe treats people, uh, maybe away from Twitter and away from, without using some of that exorbitant wit. Uh, uh, right. it's really someone I've tried to try to mock or try to try to mimic in, in some way, shape or form. That said, any kind of comparison I would ever try to make between myself and Dave would be an incredible insult to Dave. He's <laughs> such a talented pl- person, uh, so much experience doing this and just has such a way about him that, um, it's hard to emulate. And, um, I'm definitely going to try, but I'm thinking I'm always going to kind of, kind of fall, try to fall short, uh, of trying to reach Dave's level. But, um, I would say he's probably been one of the most influential people in my career. Yeah, that's awesome. He he's a legend, and you know I don't think there's any any reason why you can't get to that level too. So I appreciate your humbleness, uh, but you know just just keep pushing, I guess. But it's crazy how he's been doing it for so long, and it's such a high level. Um, you know, definitely one of the best, and like you mentioned, in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, going back to um, Empty Netters, the the blog that you created back in 2007. Um, what was the idea behind that? Because it was it was unique. Like I mentioned in the intro, it, was, it wasn't just like your traditional X's and O's, right? You kind of try to put a spin on it, maybe a little bit more entertaining. And um, you posted something on there every single day, which I think was pretty awesome, especially back then in like 2007, um, to be able to have that much content. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, back then, I mean, this is well before Twitter or Facebook or, or a lot of social media platforms. I think maybe MySpace was maybe still the big player in terms of social media and things like that. Uh, back at that time. So, um, you know, blogging, you know, it was still a pretty, you know, commonly accepted or much more prominent, I guess, platform uh, to kind of put a lot of content out and stuff like that. So, um, and, you know, my editors at the time just said, hey, you know, we want to try. They had done something like that with the Steeler blog at the time. And the Steelers are still, the, you know, the big drivers, I think, for every uh, media outlet here in Pittsburgh in terms of, you know, traffic and things like that. But, um, the Penguins were on the rise at the time, you know, that was maybe Sidney Crosby's second or third year in the NHL at the time. And, uh, they were starting to make a push to become a playoff team. And they were kind of the hot new young thing there. And, um, my editors at the time wanted to do a blog and they said, just, uh, just try to drive some traffic. You know, I mean, you know, stay within the bounds of good journalism and things like that, but you know, just try to drive traffic. And you know, at the time I had no insight in terms of, uh, the Penguins. I was just someone watching them on my TV, like anyone else. I, I didn't even have you know, a media credential or anything like that. So, um, right. I would just watch games and make, you know, strange observations. And, um, in fact, I, you know, we just had the 14th anniversary, I think of, uh, the first game blog I did was on, uh, February 14th, uh, Valentine's day of 2007, the Penguins played the Blackhawks. It was a five, four shootout win with Eric Christensen getting the, the, the winning shootout goal. Uh, but that was actually, and that's actually the very first game the Penguins had their sellout streak that went like, yeah, it's obviously interrupted right now due to the pandemic, but that was the very first game of their sellout streak. So I always kind of remember the particulars of that game for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, for the Penguins' sake and also for my own sake. But um, I would just yeah. make funny observations how often you know, they, they made a they, they made a point to note that Tuomo Rutu and Yorko Rutu were brothers. And 
just just you know fun, weird commercials or weird little uh, things that maybe happen in the game, and you know throw in some some funny observations or, or you know stupid little you know pop culture jokes, things like that. So um, I just kind of did what I thought was natural, and you know we would figure out if it was if it was good or bad, and uh, you know, ultimately, I mean, it seemed like it worked out pretty well. It seemed like people had a pretty good reaction to it. So. Uh, I was allowed to kind of start covering games, you know, by the end of that year uh, in the playoffs when they played the Ottawa Senators in the first round. And they got knocked out, but um, that was the first time I started covering games and things like that. And uh, the following year, I started covering games in the regular season, and you know, ultimately that ended up them going to the Stanley Cup final. And that was the first time I ever covered games on the road was going to Detroit's Joe Louis Arena and covering a Stanley Cup final for the first time. So. Um, it was, I mean, I, I don't think it can happen now, just given how the media environment is now with, uh, particularly with social media and things like that. But, um, it, it was something that, uh, I had no idea how it was ever going to work. It certainly seemed like it did. And, um, I'm still very grateful for, for that opportunity that I was given by my editors at that time. Yeah. And, and like, I, that was one of my next questions, actually, what you just touched on. I, I think that's interesting, like how, and you mentioned you didn't think it would be able to work, uh, now with the social media environment. Um, you know, how do you navigate the world of professional journalism in an era with social media where like everybody, um, like you said, I, you know, I could just be sitting at home watching the game and tweeting out and you know, you might, there's plenty of uh, Penguins accounts or just Penguins fan accounts that have, you know, a decent number of followers and they're just watching the game like everybody else. And you're like trying to maintain the, the professional journalism and write, uh, you know, for a newspaper and, and, you know, online and stuff like that. So how do you navigate that this whole era? And do you think social media is good or bad for sports journalism, I guess, in general? Well, it's funny if I can kind of track back to my old blog. Um, you know, like a lot of the things I would do is like I would walk around the building, like the interior of the building that, you know, maybe most fans didn't have access to. And I would take pictures of like, oh, here's the Zamboni gate or here's, you know, the view from the ice or. Um, here's the gate to the penguins, you know, dressing room. And, um, it wasn't like I could just take a picture of that and post it on, on Twitter because Twitter really wasn't available then. Right. Um, so I could post it on my blog and, you know, that's where you would see those things. And, and now I can do that in, you know, a matter of 10 seconds with my iPhone. And, um, and that's another thing too. I mean, smartphone technology really is, uh, you know, changed the world, I think, in a lot of ways, particularly journalism over the over the 10 or 11 years, you know, we've all had, you know, iPhones or, or what have you. So um, in that sense, it's really different. But um, as far as social media and Twitter and things like that, I, I mean, I certainly take advantage of it. Um, and there was maybe a time in my life where I would, you know, get in a lot of arguments and things like that with people over mundane things. I, I, <laughs> I think everybody that was an that. incredible <laughs> waste of time, incredible waste of energy. Uh, um, I'm not going to argue with someone over whether or not, you know, Chad Ruedo should be in the lineup anymore. Whereas maybe when I was 27, 28, I'd be more prone to getting drawn into things like that. So, um, I try to avoid that stuff. I just try to, you know, you know, for the most part, I just try to, you know, tweet out any kind of news, actual news that I, that I can report. I try to tweet out links to my stories because ultimately that's the main benefit for me on social media is to get people to, you know, look, look at my stories and drive traffic to my, my company's website. Uh, and then I'll throw in kind of, you know, funny, just catty observations that, that are, you know, hopefully for the most people out there, are, you know, they realize it's sarcasm. And um, I have a couple of personal interests in terms of like things I'm really in the, I'm kind of a science space space geek. So I, a lot of times I'll retweet the things from NASA, like the, the, the Mars rover that's up there now, uh, you know, some of the fo- videos and photos it's sending out. So, I mean, I, I generally try to avoid rumors like, you know, there was a thing with Marc-Andre Fleury, you know, two weeks ago and then. Maybe we could go to Sydney Crosby, Colorado, and 
I didn't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. I, I didn't want to, you know, have anything to do with it. If it doesn't come true, it's not my job to correct someone's bad reporting. So um, I'm not going to I'm not going to address it. Um, and there's sometimes where, you know, you definitely have to kind of get into it and things like that. And Cindy Crosby even, um, you know, talked about it last week in a video conference uh, that we had with some of the Pittsburgh reporters. And I, I give a lot of credit to Shelly Anderson, who's another longtime reporter here who I've worked with at times here. Um, she asked a pretty good question for Sidney Crosby, and he gave a pretty good answer as far as uh, maybe dismissing that rumor. So, um, But, yeah, again, for the most part, I try to avoid that stuff. I, I, I don't want to ch- try to chase clicks by just saying, oh, what is, you know, you know, what does Chris, what does the Mark Friedman waiver claim mean for Chris Letang's future? I, I just, I don't have an, <laughs> ap- I don't have an appetite for that type of stuff just to get a clicks because, you know, someone's Googling for Chris Letang and, and, you know, that story would come up because, um, and it would be a story with absolutely no caloric uh, value whatsoever. So, um, again, I just don't have the appetite or, 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 you know, the constitution for doing things like that. And I, I tend to avoid it at all costs. Yeah, no, understood. And I think that's exactly what uh, a big problem is in today's society and uh, something I wanted to talk about next and, and kind of lead into that as a good segue. But you see like the main guys in, in, in terms of uh, like the national, like, you know, on Fox Sports or on ESPN, you're looking at like the Skip Baylesses and stuff like that, that are kind of just, they're throwing a lot of personal, um, you know, personal shots or they have opinions like that, that are kind of just, they're, they're so outlandish and just so crazy, you know, that they, they're just trying to get people to talk about them and they really don't have to go into the locker room um, anymore. I'm sure they did at one point whenever they were on beats or whatever, you know, back in the earlier part of their career. But like, I wonder about that. that that's a, a an interesting question I have for you is if you ever have to write like a, a critical piece on a player, a coach, a member of management, something like that, um, and you write it, is it ever awkward to go into the locker room after the game and see them? Um, you know, I'm not sure. They might say they don't look at the, um, you know, press clippings and all that stuff in the newspapers, but I'm sure they're told about it. Um, is that something that's awkward to you? Like, or is it generally just understood that, that you're just doing your job? Um, I would say the vast majority of the players just don't care. Um, I, and it, I just don't think they have the time of their day to go read and write every single thing that's written about them because uh, frankly, there's so much more of it. Whereas, you know, if you did in 1980 or something like that, you know, the only, if you, if you were critical of uh, Mary Lemieux in 1987 or whatever, you know, there were only two newspapers in town. Uh, that could do that, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and the Pittsburgh Press. Right. Whereas now it's, um, uh, there's just so many different outlets. I mean, there's now four outlets that cover the Penguins on a daily basis, including mine. Uh, you have a couple of radio stations, you know, the television stations all get involved now, uh, particularly when, when the Steelers season's over. You see, I always joke that it must be, uh, you know, TV season because you know, when, the, when the Steelers are over, all, the, all of a sudden the TV networks, TV stations <laughs> start sending cameramen over. Um so, uh, no, to, to answer your main question, I don't think most players care that what you write. And um, now, if you put out a kind of a catty comment on Twitter or something like that, I, maybe that's a little bit easier for them to digest and things like that. And uh, I've had some players, you know, um, you know, comment to me. Like, for instance, you know, I always kind of have a, f- a funny little line where I say, oh, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so are on the varsity power play. And this guy and that guy are now on the JV power play. And then I had a guy come up to me the next day because I wrote that on Twitter, just kind of a quick little pithy remark that really I really had no intent really other than that just to make a you know a funny little crack right and um he said you know, I 18 years in the, or eight years in the NHL I'm on, I'm on the JV give me a break so um and again maybe maybe context was kind of missing in that in sense but um for the most part I don't have players really ever you know critique me or criticize me for 
anything I've written about them. Uh, and I, 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 th- I like to think I give them a, a fairly critical and fairly even look when I write things about them. Anytime I write maybe more of an evaluation piece and not necessarily an opinion piece. Um, but, um, and then, you know, again, maybe there was time in my life where I would say, oh, you know, Malkin stunk on that play. What was he thinking? I just don't have the appetite to say that either good, bad, or indifferent, uh, in terms of, you know, whether or not he makes a good player or a bad player on a power player or, or, or what have you. So, um, it doesn't really serve me any purpose to say, uh, oh, Malkin stinks on Twitter. Um, I can write that maybe in, in something and, and say he needs to play better. But for me to just, just kind of barf out like a three or four sentence, uh, tweet and, um, it doesn't, again, it doesn't benefit me in any way, shape or form. And, um, there might be a time later where, you know, maybe I have to try to ask Evgeny Malkin a question or whoever a question. And, uh, maybe they're a little less, uh, uh, eager to deal with me or talk with me because I put out some, some pointless tweet that really, again, serves no benefit. So, um, you know, if I write something critical of the team or something like that, I might get some heat from say, uh, you know, a public relations person or a team spokesperson or, you know, a general manager, what have you. Um, that might uh, come down on you maybe a little bit more than, say, from a player. And, and more often than not, you, you, that's maybe a more uh, engaged or more uh, uh, complicated conversation in that sense. But um, just on a day-to-day basis with players, I, I've almost rarely, rarely have had players say, you wrote this about me, this is wrong. So, um, but now I, I've, I've, again, that might be, that might've been something different 40 years ago, but for the most part today, I don't, I don't sense a lot of that in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I always wondered that. So, um, you know, that's a great answer. Um, I, I think too, I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, the article you wrote recently about Sidney Crosby's 1000th game. Uh, great article, by the way, I, I reached out Thank to you. you on Twitter. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was really well written. And, uh, I, I know, I mean, a, a, people like me or avid Penguin fans or avid hockey fans know you hear it all the time how hard Sidney Crosby works. Um, he's got God-given talent, obviously, uh, but he works harder than everybody else, and everybody that's played with him has said that. That's kind of been um, stuck with him like his entire career. And like I, I thought it was interesting when you pointed out, I remember in 2008 when the, the Penguins brought uh, Mike Zygamanis in, the fourth liner. I think they got him in a trade, and... Um, he basically, he was a fourth line guy, but he, he was brought in mainly for his faceoff prowess. Right. So it, I thought it was interesting in your article, how, you know, you said that Sidney Crosby would pick his brain and work with him after practice and kind of watch him uh, while he was playing and pick little things from him. And he went from Crosby. I've said this in the past being, you know, as far as how many draws he was taking and how much uh, time on the ice he was getting, he was one of the, the worst uh, faceoff guys in the league at that, at, at, for his tier of player uh, whenever he, you know, he was early on in his career and he really worked at it and now he's one of the best. So, um, you know, it, it was just crazy. I don't know if you can talk a little bit more about like Crosby's work ethic um, in, in things you may have seen in practice, watching practice every day, um, or you know, just a, over the course of his career while you've been covering him. Um, and if I can circle back just to the article itself, if I can heap some praise onto myself here, pat myself. Sure, on the back yeah, here. definitely. <laughs> um, you know, I, if I had just written a story about you know what Sidney Crosby said on the video conference that day about you know uh, it's an honor to play my thousandth game, I'm really eager to you know just be grateful to be here and just rewrote what a lot of the cliches that he said in that. Frankly, right. um, okay, I'd have a story, but it wouldn't be a very unique story. So I, the one thing I've always tried to pride myself uh, through most of my writing is trying to write something that's you can't get anywhere else. And, and it might be a good story, it might be a bad story, it might not drive much traffic, what have you. But uh, I, mean, I was proud of that story just from the standpoint that it was unique and, I, and it was the only place you could get that story that I wrote the other day. So 
Um, I, that's always been my goal. A lot of the writing I do, I don't always meet that goal. I, I, I can sometimes fall, fall short of it, but um, that's always going to be something that I try to try to do, and I take a lot of pride in that. So, uh, but thank you again for the the kind words. Yeah, on certainly. That, like like you said, I, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was just the way you put it was perfect. Like you just said here, um, it was different. Like you could have easily, like you said, gone and in Crosby and all hockey players really, uh, for the most part, uh, give their a cliche answer. You very rarely get like a really good soundbite unless somebody's really ticked off or something, but. And that's um, very much true right now with almost all the access being done you know, via remote means and you know, virtual press conferences right now. So it's very difficult to get any kind of unique stories out of those uh, conferences and stuff. Right. right. So that's that's all the more impressive that we, you were able to do. So um, I, I thought it was a great article. Uh, Thank really you. Enjoyed Thank it. you. Um, uh, but to your, yeah. your earlier question about Sid, I mean, there's I mean, he's not always the last guy off practice that I, I, if anyone follows me on Twitter, I always kind of, you know, make a note that Teddy Bluger is the last guy out here. Um, <laughs> I, I think we're actually seeing a lot of that benefit uh, by how, how well Teddy Bluger is playing right now. But as far as uh, uh, Sid, I mean, there's all these kind of little things he'll work on with practice and he'll work with. You know the big guys of Kenny Malkin or Crystal Tang, or he'll work with you know some of the lower end guys on the roster. You know guys like uh, Drew O'Connor or whoever, and you know he'll work on little things of his game. And um, it's no accident that he's the way he is in terms of the success he's had and um, and whatnot. So uh, he's a he's a guy that um, that I mean he's obsessed with the game, and I, I say that in a respectful fashion. There's all these little things that he tries to, to perfect and fine tune. And he got kind of neurotic with that. And um, I, I think the first time I ever saw that was maybe like the year after they won the Stanley Cup in 2009. Like it's after practice and he's maybe one of like six or seven guys on the ice. And he's out there with Dan Bosma at the time, too. He was the head coach. And they're just going at it with one another working on faceoffs. Like Dan Bosma was taking faceoffs against Sidney Crosby for like 20 minutes at the like, – <laughs> Melon Arena, which is a surreal thing to see. And, um, and again, that was, you know, well before, you know, we had, you know, most of us had smartphones and could videotape that thing and, you know, post on Twitter. But I, I just remember Sidney Crosby and Dan Bowsman going at it pretty well. I mean, they weren't hacking and slashing or, or anything like that, but um, they were going pretty hard at, at you know, working on face-offs, on a neutral zone face-off on some random practice on a Tuesday in November or something like that. And, um, you know, Dan Bowser was a guy in his career. He probably had to be that way to make it to the NHL. Sidney Crosby's a guy that um, he probably does that to be the best player in the NHL. Uh, so um, that was the first time I saw Sidney Crosby like that. And, and you hear stories about just um, all the little things he maybe does off the ice with his sticks and his equipment and things like that. And you know, maybe some of that's kind of obsessive compulsive, you know, neurotic, neurotic, you know, neuroses, I guess, but, um, also too, I mean, I think it just puts him in his mind at ease when he goes and takes the ice for the first time and, or, or takes the right. ice at any time. So, um, you know, he's very much devoted to his craft. He's not just here because of his physical abilities. He's trying to maximize him. It seems like to the best of his ability and, um, any little edge he can get with, you know, in terms of, you know, how well he skates or, you know, how well his sticks taped, anything like that, he takes full advantage of and. Um, again, the way the, the fact he's been doing this for 15, 16 years isn't an accident. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's the uh, that's the answer I wanted. I, I thought that was um, you know I wanted to get your your insight and your perspective um, on Crosby and just his work ethic and and talking about the article. Uh, a fun question uh, before I let you go because I know we've been talking a lot about career and and all that and that's it's all so interesting. Uh, but I wanted to lighten the mood up a little bit too and ask you what your favorite uh, NHL rink to visit is and why. And uh, are the hot dogs at the Bell Center as good as they're advertised? 
I, you know, I've never been to, I've never been to the Bell Center. Uh, no way. Really? That's, I mean, I haven't done the full circuit yet. Uh, I mean, a lot of that's out west because, uh, you know, the Tribune Review, we have early deadlines, so we don't uh, – um, it's, it's kind of pointless for, we go out, for us to go out west, at least, you know, during normal times uh, and get a story that's only going to appear online. But um, I've never been – Montreal is the one I've never been to. Um, my favorite building uh, – maybe it's cliche, but I really like going to Madison Square Garden. Uh, just because it's New York, there, there's a different energy there. Uh, it's one. It's one of the. It's the oldest building, I, I believe, in the NHL now. I think, yeah, Calgary's maybe the second oldest, but and Calgary's a kind of a, hood, a crazy building in and of itself. But um, Madison Square Garden is one of the older buildings. I mean, a lot of times when you go into these buildings now, like the ones that have been built in the last 20, 25 years, they're all cookie cutters. I mean, you can go to Boston or Buffalo or Philadelphia. And it's basically the same building, just with different colors on the wall and different team logos on the wall and banners and things like that. It's it's the same kind of just it's almost kind of like, you know, what, uh, you know, a three river stadium was or you know Bush Stadium was or the vet in Philadelphia was in terms of those multipurpose stadiums, for football and baseball. They're all basically the same. Well, a lot of these multipurpose buildings that have been built the last 25 years are, are kind of like that. And. Um, and, and frankly, PPG paints is, isn't a lot different from say the, the Prudential center in New Jersey or, um, you know, the, the building in Columbus, the nationwide arena, they, they're all very similar. And I, I give credit actually, the, the one they built in Detroit about three or four years ago, it's very unique. They, they tried to make some efforts to make that a very unique building. And I enjoy that building actually quite a bit. It's, it's, it's very unique just how it's structured and. Uh, the lighting and just the concourses and things like that. They've done a very good job there. And I heard the building in Edmonton that's been built there maybe two years ago was, is like that too. I've never been to that one yet, but, um, but getting to my original point, I really like MSJ because you can tell it's an old building. Uh, On top of that too, I don't think enough people realize like the ice surface or the, or in in basketball, the playing surface for basketball, it's actually like two or three floors above street level. It's a, it's a very unique structure where, you enter the building, you have to go up like two or three floors to get to the playing surface. And, uh, and you know, the roof's iconic, obviously, but when you go down below, I mean, it's, there's, there's always weird, uh, hallways and, and corners you have to turn to get to the dressing rooms and things like that. And, uh, whereas, you know, it's almost the same way to get to the, the, the visiting dressing room in Buffalo as it is in Boston. It's just, it, they're, they're all kind of stale, bland, antiseptic buildings, whereas MSG, I mean, you can tell there's a, history there you can tell it's unique and and when you and by the way when you leave the building you're in the middle of manhattan the city that never sleeps so it's a it's always a fun place to go uh, i always look forward to going to games there and uh um hopefully once we get past you know this pandemic and stuff uh we'll be able to go back to msg again at some point here yeah i mean definitely uh, msg is a great place i've actually i've never seen a hockey game there i've seen a new york knicks game there um but I'll yeah say- it's crazy like I'll say this, it can get very dead and quiet in there. It's not always the greatest atmosphere in terms of the fan noise and stuff like that. And, hey, the Rangers have been good for a couple of years now, so why not? But um, when you do get a lot of Pittsburgh fans there, you know, Pittsburgh fans travel well or there's a lot of displaced Pittsburghers that live uh, up in New York, New Jersey. It, it can get kind of raucous. raucous. But, um, again, it's it's a very unique structure uh, for anyone that's been you know fortunate enough to kind of walk around it, uh, some of the uh, less than uh, public areas, I guess. Yeah, that that's awesome. I like I, I liked what you said too. Like, cause I agree with you that most of the arenas now, the newer arenas, like you know, Nationwide Arena, like you said, or Wells Fargo, TD Garden, PPG Paints, all those arenas that they're they're all in the last you know ten twenty years, and even some of the newer ones. It's nice to see, like you said, the uh, Oilers and the Red Wings are doing it, um, trying to make them unique. 
but most of the new ones now are just so uh, cookie cutter. And it's crazy because I don't know if a lot of people know that the older arenas like Chicago Stadium and the Montreal Forum and the old Boston Garden, they weren't all the same size, which is crazy to me. Like the rink, like the ice surface, some of them were a little bit smaller, just maybe by a couple feet. Um, and it's crazy to hear like those, you know, Hall of Fame players like uh, Lemieux and Gretzky and those guys talking about, hey, I loved going to play in Boston. It was a smaller ice surface. It was, you know, the fans are right on top of you. Now it's just kind of like, I don't want to say it's like corporate, but you know what I mean? It's, they're all just, they're all multi-purpose, so they can have basketball in there. They can have the circus come to town. They can have concerts, whatever the case is. It's not just like a unique building anymore, like especially like the Mellon Arena was. I know it wasn't built for hockey. It was built for the Pittsburgh Symphony, I think. So, But yeah. the way it was built and the acoustics in there, that place was rocking all the time, and it was so much fun to go there, like to the point where the when the Penguins would score, especially like in the playoffs or something, that – uh, the upper deck, like some of those stands that are up near the roof would just be shaking. Your whole body would be moving uh, while that place was rocking. So it's just unfortunate. But I mean, I understand they're going to go with the, the state of the art facility and try to get the, you know, the most green energy and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it's nice that MSG kind of, I mean, I don't, they're never going to tear Madison Square Garden down. They're going to keep putting millions and millions of dollars in it to preserve it. It's the world's most famous arena. Um, so that's cool. I'll definitely have to get up there for a Rangers game. It's actually the fourth MSG, actually, of all time. And going back to the uh, mid, like, late 1800s, there's been two, three other Madison Square Gardens uh, oh, throughout really? history. But, um, and I, I think the third m- more recent one, I think it's the one that guys like uh, Harry Howe and Andy Bathgate played in the 50s or whatever. Um, it's probably some big corporate, you know, structure now or the property it is, but but yeah, the New York Rangers can't you know, move to New Jersey or Long Island and build a building <laughs> up there, and they can't right. just buy the building across the street. So yeah, MSG is probably going to be there for the long haul, just given the the real estate uh, realities in New York and Manhattan's. But uh, um, but if it's for as far as like the more modern buildings, like keep in mind the main purpose of them is to generate revenue through you know a lot of the luxury suites, whether it's for uh, the main tenant like the Penguins, or if you know Lady Gaga comes in for a concert. Um, the most, most of the revenue, the bulk of the revenue comes from like, you know, a corporation, like say Alcoa renting out a couple uh, or, or buying a couple luxury suites. And, um, you know, the, in a lot of ways, you know, the, the, the general rank and file seating is very much a second, secondary concern, uh, in terms of the, the financial, you know, things, uh, end of things. And I don't want to get off on a rant here, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, most of these buildings, uh, again, the luxury suites is where, um, uh, most of the financial windfall is reaped. Yeah, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't realize. I mean, I did realize that, but I guess when you put it that way, it makes sense. You know, that that's it's obvious that they're trying to draw as much revenue as possible. It's not like the building was built just for the Penguins. The Penguins are the primary tenant, like you said, but you know, it's not built only exclusively for them. They want to drive other, uh, you know, other areas in, in revenue uh, from you know concerts and things like that. But but Seth, you don't know how appreciative I am of you coming on. I had a great time. Uh, I think our listeners will really enjoy this and. If they ever let fans back in the arenas, I'd love to buy you a beer, man. Keep up the good work. I'll be reading. Oh, well, as long as you say nice things about me, I'll come on any other time, Tim. So, no, I, I appreciate <laughs> that. I appreciate you inviting me, and uh, uh, this was fun. I appreciate it, man. All right, man. Take care. Thanks. 
I really hope you guys enjoyed the interview with Seth Rorabaugh. Like I mentioned, it was an absolute honor for me to have him on. I really appreciate him taking the time. I learned a lot, and I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you guys did as well. So if you want to follow Seth on Twitter, you can follow him at Seth Rorabaugh. I suggest you do. He's got one of the most unique writing styles and interesting writing styles in the sport of hockey, and I really enjoy it, and I think you guys will too. So swig a beer for Seth Rorabaugh for coming on the Rambling Brews podcast. I want to pivot a little bit, but stay in the NHL. I know this episode has been very NHL heavy, but honestly, I'm not sure there's been a a whole hell of a lot of uh, news in other sports, Um, but there's been a lot going on in the National Hockey League, so we're going to stay with that. Um, This past weekend on Saturday and Sunday, uh, first Saturday, the Colorado Avalanche played the Vegas Golden Knights in the uh, Lake Tahoe uh, Outdoor Showcase, which was one of the most like unbelievable settings and pretty uh, beautiful um, rinks in the world, just right on the on the water there. And I know last episode I mentioned that the uh, the game was in uh, Lake Tahoe, which is in Utah. Uh, but I wanted I wanted to correct myself. This game was actually played in uh, State Line, Nevada, so right across the state line there. Um, just an absolutely breathtaking backdrop, like I mentioned. Um, I don't think the NHL. The one problem, like I said, the one problem. Um, I'm not sure the NHL anticipated it was going to be so sunny there, and um, the, the sun was beaming down on the game. It started at 3 o'clock Eastern time, so uh, 12 o'clock uh, out there in Tahoe. There was people out in the water on kayaks and boats rocking Detroit Red Wings jerseys. Not sure why they weren't playing. Uh, thank God for the viewership. They weren't playing. But, um, you know, there was people over there who seemed to be having a great time. Uh, but the ice was the shits. I mean, so the sun was beaming down, and they had big ruts in the ice. You could tell it uh, right off the draw, basically, in the first period. Guys were tripping. Guys were falling all over the place, going to the bench, getting their skates sharpened by the trainers, things like that. But it really had nothing to do with that. It was all the ice. Uh, The ice got so soft because of the warm weather, um, and the NHL appeared not to be prepared for that. Um, I hate to knock the NHL. I mean, they, they put on a good, they obviously put on a great show in most of their outdoor games and they're trying to do something different this year without being able to have fans and do something, uh, for TV in a unique, uh, location. But, uh, ultimately, you know, it, it, it was a gong show the first 20 minutes in the first period, the Colorado avalanche, I believe had a one goal lead heading into the second period. And, uh, there was a, there was a delay for about 30 minutes while the, um, ice crew and the officials tried to fix the ice, but ultimately it was deemed it was unsafe to play. Uh, so the NHL delayed the game. They postponed the game, uh, to come back on later that night, which would have been midnight Eastern time. So pretty sick under the lights. Um, if you ask me, it was awesome. They probably should have just done it, um, you know, at night to begin with, but I'm sure they wanted to get the backdrop and you don't want to pay all that money and set up a rink and play at night. So, uh, but basically, that's what they had to do in order to have the time to get the ice right, get the sun to go down, get the temperature to, temperature to drop a little bit. Um, and, and they also postponed the game Sunday, which was the Boston Bruins and the Philadelphia Flyers to a night game. But ultimately, Saturday, um, Nathan McKinnon and the Colorado Avalanche won the game. It was crazy. It was actually a pretty good game that night. Like I said, it was electric to watch it at night. It was awesome. And one of the funniest moments um, of the game was Alex Petrangelo. So for those who don't know, he's the captain. Um, sorry, he's not the captain of the Vegas Golden Knights. He was the captain of the St. Louis Blues. Mark Stone is now the captain of the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, but he's he's one of the best defensive players in the NHL. He signed with Vegas this offseason in free agency. Um, he's Like I said, he's one of the best defensemen in the league, and they had him mic'd up for the game. So 
on the particular play that I'm talking about, which was hilarious, Nathan McKinnon, uh, one of my favorite players in the league and one of the best players in the league, picked up the puck at his own blue line. And mind you, Petrangelo's at the other end of the ice at his blue line. And as soon as he sees McKinnon get the puck with a little bit of steam on the mic, he says, oh boy, oh boy. And next thing you know, McKinnon comes down, dangles the shit out of Petrangelo, shoots it far side off the post and in and scores. Just a just an awesome moment, just showing the respect that uh, Petrangelo and the, the top defensemen in the, in the league have for Nathan McKinnon and those high-end players. It was pretty cool to hear that. Um, you feel bad for, for Petrangelo having to deal with that from a defensive perspective, but McKinnon's almost impossible to, to cover. He's so fast. He's so elusive. He's so electric. Uh, great shot, great hands. Um, but that was one of the cool moments of the uh, the Saturday game. Um, and then Sunday game, the Bruins. I got to talk about the Boston Bruins. Typically, I'm not a big Boston fan. Um, you know, I, I I just as a Penguins fan, we just you know we don't see eye to eye with them. They typically have the Penguins number, um, and especially in the playoffs of recent years. You know, now going back to Mario Lemieux's era, the Penguins dummied the Bruins a couple years in a row in the playoffs, um, leading to the Stanley Cups for the Pittsburgh Penguins. But in recent memory, I, it's been a, it's been a number of years since the Pittsburgh Penguins have gone to Boston uh, in TD Garden and got a win. Um, so that always pisses me off a little bit, but I couldn't, I couldn't help but enjoy this. The Bruins drip, man, as the kids are saying these days, the Bruins drip, uh, they showed up in basically all nineties, like track jumpsuits. It was awesome. Um, these guys are great. I mean, David Pasternak, one of the best personalities in the league, Brad Marchand, we've discussed before. He's, he's outgoing and awesome. And, and just, just, it was electric to watch them all walk in with the colorful, like fresh prints, a Bel Air looking jumpsuits, uh, just an absolutely um, awesome display coming into the game, and and uh, they came in and they absolutely, which was to the delight of me, they shit pumped the uh, Philadelphia Flyers, blew them off the ice. Uh, Carter Hart, as I mentioned before, he's had he's had some struggles, has horrible numbers this year, uh, but still a young goalie. But he got yanked in the third period there. Uh, David Pasternak uh, for the Boston Bruins had the hat trick. I believe he he now has nine goals in nine games playing great right up there with uh, Alex Ovechkin and Austin Matthews in terms of the Rocket Richard race. Now, granted, Pasternak hasn't played as many games. He had an injury coming in off the offseason. Um, but those three guys are just incredible. Um, you know, it, it, it was crazy because, like, Boston, they just – they always seem to just – they click. They play as a unit. They play well. Like, you look at them on paper. I look at their, like – second, third, fourth line. I'm like, these guys, I mean, they're okay. and They're decent, but they're always right up there at the top of the standings. Uh, Bruce Cassidy, hell of a coach. Um, Tuka Rask gets a lot of heat up in Boston. I have no idea why. I, I think it's a lot, you know, it's similar to just any any hockey city or any sports city where they're just overly critical whenever they don't win every game. But he's one of the best goaltenders in the league, and they've got a great uh, young defense. I know they lost Tori Krug and uh, Zdeno Chara, as we've talked about on previous episodes, but Boston, they just keep rolling. Uh, like I said, they're the cream of the crop of the East Division, and uh, they dummied the, the Philadelphia Flyers in this game. Pasternak with the hat trick. Um, overall great game. And then after the game, uh, Pasternak had to do his zoom interview and he was, he was big mad. He was pissed because, uh, like I said, with staying with the nineties theme, I don't really know where it came from, but staying with the nineties theme, uh, the Bruins were jamming to, uh, I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world in the locker room. And Pasternak had these sick, like macho man, pink, uh, sunglasses on. And he was pissed off that he, he had to miss the, uh, the dance celebration with his teammates. So, uh, that's just a tight knit group. 
Uh, awesome to watch. And like I said, it was, it was fun to watch Philadelphia get shit pumped. Anytime they get shit pumped, it, it's a good day for me. Um, but all in all, I think it was a success other than like the, the, the debacle with the, uh, the ice being shitty in the first, um, you know, the first game, but they made the most of it. They moved it to a night game. Um, and it was, it was fun to watch. And I think good for the NHL, uh, to get some of their superstars on national TV, like Poshinok, Marshawn, McKinnon, Landis Cog, Miko Rantanen, um, just an absolute, uh, you know, I think a success for the NHL. And I know people were like, man, where are they going to have the next uh, outdoor game? They're going to do it at Lake Louise up in uh, Banff in Alberta, which is probably, um, I haven't been a lot of places in the world. I, you know, I, I typically stick to the, uh, the United States of America. Um, but man, Banff in, uh, Alberta and Lake Louise is, might be the most beautiful place on the planet, uh, which would be awesome to see them play a game there. But I don't know why we're, why we're even talking about that. Once fans are allowed back in the building, you know, damn well, the NHL is going to go back to a major stadium and have an outdoor game where they can sell 60, 70, 80, you know, maybe even a hundred thousand tickets. They're not stupid, uh, but they're making the most of, of this event here. Um, and, and trying to give something for, uh, you know, hockey fans and NHL fans to, to look forward to. And I think they succeeded with that. Um, so all in all, I, I really enjoyed it. And a couple notes from around the NHL, as far as standings are concerned, the Toronto Maple Leafs are leading the North division uh, through 20 games. They're 14 wins, four losses and two overtime losses for 30 points. Um, just absolutely dummying everybody. Basically they've got a six point lead on the Edmonton Oilers uh, for first place here. And, you know, you typically know in a traditional season what you have after 20 games. So I have to imagine that will be the same case here. Uh, after 20 games, it appears that Toronto is the cream of the crop of the North Division. And I think they're going to win that division. They're playing very, very well. Um, moving to the Central Division, like I mentioned on the last episode, Florida. Uh, they're really surprising some people. Uh, they've got 12 wins, 3 losses, and 2 overtime losses in 17 games for 26 points. Um, not too far off Toronto's pace um, in, in uh, as far as the best records in the league. Um, and if they can get some better goaltending, they're getting decent goaltending from Chris Dreger, but their $10 million man, uh, Sergei Bobrovsky, if he could step it up a little bit, I think they could even do better. Um, they're definitely going to be a force to be reckoned with in the Central Division, and that division is pretty tight. Um, only five points separates uh, first place through fifth place, so that's going to be tough. Uh, moving to the East, as I mentioned, um, the Boston Bruins are the best team, uh, the cream of the crop of the East. But granted, they're only uh, they only got a two point cushion on the Washington Capitals, a three point cushion on the Penguins and the New York Islanders. Um, so they have eleven wins, three losses, and two overtime losses in sixteen games played for twenty four points. So I think that might be the tightest division. Um, I think we probably saw that uh, coming into the season that this is the most loaded division by far. I um, mean, you definitely are going to have one or two teams in this division that don't make the playoffs. That probably, if they did make the playoffs, could definitely make some noise. So just the way the divisions are laid out, um, you know, it's going to be tough sledding for some of those teams that are going to miss. Um, and then finally, in the West Division. Uh, Vegas, they've got uh, 11 wins, four losses, and one overtime loss in 23, uh, sorry, 23 points in 16 games. Um, they've only got a one-point lead on St. Louis and a four-point lead on Colorado. And surprise, Los Angeles, one of the teams I predicted to be one of the worst teams in the league, and I think a lot of people did. Uh, so I'll be eating some crow on that if they can keep it up. But they're in fourth place right now. They're in a playoff spot with eight wins, six losses, and three overtime losses for 19 points in 18 games. So we can see if they'll uh, they'll keep that up. I'm sorry, 17 games. That's uh, West Virginia University math right there. Um 
but we'll see if they can keep that up. And, you know, it's going to be a tight race in all these divisions. I can't wait. Like I said, you know, we probably have, you know, 25, 30 games, depending on which team you're looking at left in the season. Uh, so it's a tight race down the stretch here, and we'll hope everybody can get their games in. Um, one note I wanted to point out, too, um, with regard to a couple episodes ago, I talked about the importance, in my opinion, of fighting in the National Hockey League. I don't know if everybody saw this. I'll, I will tweet out a video of this from the at Rambling Brews on Twitter. Um, but Marcus Felino, he's one of the, um, he, he plays for the Minnesota Wild. He's more of a bruiser kind of, you know, depth player, um, checker, great third line, fourth line type guy. Um, he can throw his hands. He can throw fists for sure. Um, he had a fight the other night in a game against the San Jose Sharks where he fought Nikolai, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher this guy's name, but Nikolai uh, Kanaizov. Uh, I hope I got that right. Um, he fought him, and I'm not exactly sure what happened prior to that, um, but they basically dropped the gloves in the heat of the moment. And Marcus Felino, so this Nikolai uh, Knaizov, as I mentioned, he is a he's a rookie, so he hasn't been in the league obviously uh, very long. Is kind of just yeah, a lot of the, you see you see it a lot with these Russian. Um, and European players, they come over, they don't have a lot of experience fighting and playing the North American style, the physical style. Um, it's a much smaller rink in North America than it is in uh, Europe and in the KHL and the Olympic size rinks. Um, so he doesn't have a lot of experience fighting, but he stands up, um, you know, for a teammate that, that I guess, you know, might've taken a hit or whatever the case was. And he, he decides he's going to fight Marcus Foligno and Marcus Foligno, you know, he's not a guy you want to fuck with. Um, I'll say that, but basically I haven't really seen this happen in a long time, but Felino hit him with two straight rights right at the beginning of the fight. And next thing you know, nothing. the only thing you can see on Nikolai Knaizov's face is blood. He's got blood coming down, pouring down his face. Now, I think what happened was Felino caught him in the visor and pushed the visor in, and his glass visor cut him in under his eye. But, I mean, he looked like Ric Flair back in pro wrestling back in the day when he had blood all over the place. And uh, it was pretty cool because... You know, those guys are all warriors. They're all brothers. It's a brotherhood in the league. They're all in the same union. They don't really want to deliberately hurt each other. It's just part of the game, as I mentioned on previous episodes about my uh, stance on fighting. Uh, but Marcus Felino actually waved in the linesman. Like, the fight was still going on, and uh, Knaizov was still kind of trying to fight, but you, it was obvious he was cut bad, and the only bad things were going to happen from there because he was just leaving himself open. And, uh, you know, Felino was just teeing off on this guy. So it was awesome to see, you know, the code kind of being upheld where Felino's like, hey, hey, get in here, get in here. And the, the linesman came in, they broke it up. And after the game, uh, I thought Felino had a great quote, a classy quote, uh, where he said, um, I know he's a young kid and probably didn't know the fighting aspect of it. So I thought it was enough, you know, good on him. I give him a lot of credit. I think there's things you do when you're young to answer the bell and you have to do it and you gain a lot of respect from your teammates. So I'm sure he got that tonight, but it's just something that there's no point and I move on. I thought it was over after a couple punches, so that's all. I've had guys let up on me before and it's just a kind of a, kind of a respect code of the whole thing. So kind of what I, I talked about, and it'll tie back into um, my rant on a couple episodes ago about fighting. There is a code to it, and it was awesome to see Marcus Foligno kind of protect 
Um, his fellow brother, you know, it was a fight. It was in the heat of the moment. He caught him with a couple straight rights and dummied the shit out of him, cut him open, and it was only going to get worse from there because this kid didn't have the experience fighting in Felino. He's been fighting a long time, and if he would have kept going, he was just going to beat the wheels off him, and that's not good for anybody. So it was very classy and very awesome to see Felino do that. Um, swig a beer for Marcus Felino uh, for having a heads up, uh, having a heads up play to call the linesman in to potentially save Nikolai Knizov uh, from further injury. A couple other notes, too, from the NHL. Uh, Mike Babcock, the controversial coach. So for those who don't know, Mike Babcock, he used to coach the Anaheim Ducks. Um, and a story that's been told multiple times, I'll, I'll tell a couple of Mike Babcock stories to kind of just lay out what kind of guy he is. So... He he's won a gold medal, obviously, with Canada. He was one of the, the he was their head coach in the uh, 2010, I believe, Olympics and 2014 Olympics, both whenever they uh, won gold. Uh, but he was a coach in the uh, Anaheim system and ultimately got called up to coach the Anaheim Ducks. Um, he's had numerous encounters with players where, like, they'll be they get called up for a game or they're having a scrimmage or whatever the case is, and they're playing in the NHL bar in this case in Anaheim, and he's like talking to them before the game. And the player's like, man, this is awesome. You know, it's NHL arena or whatever. And Mike Babcock basically looks at him and says, well, you better get a good look at it because you're never going to play in the NHL again. Just a complete scumbag type of guy. He's the guy, Mike Madonna, one of the best USA-born hockey players of all time, had played 1,499 games, and he was playing for the Red Wings. There was like a few games, maybe three or four games left to go um, in the season. In his last year, they had already clinched playoffs. Um, again, he played 1,499 games in the NHL. The last three or four games, Mike Babcock healthy scratched this guy, Mike Madonna, so he wouldn't get his 1,500th game. He's an absolute just piece of shit pretty much. Um, you know, whenever he was in Toronto, uh, he called Mitch Marner into – Mitch Marner's one of their young prospects, one of their best players now, but at the time a young prospect. He called him into his office and asked him uh, which players on the team didn't work hard, and he had to rank uh, the players in terms of work ethic. Um, who he thought had the best work ethic and who he who he thought had the worst work ethic. And, uh, you know, Marner thought it was in confidence and he was a young guy and impressionable. So he figured, you know, I got to do what the coach says. And then shortly after Marner gave him his list, as the coach requested, uh, Mike Babcock came out and read the list to the fucking team in the locker room. What an absolute bitch move that is. Uh, but this guy is just a complete scumbag. But so he was fired by the Maple Leafs. Um, and all of a sudden now they've got Shelton Keefe, the coach. Uh, he implemented some new systems, played pretty well last year uh, under Shelton Keefe. The Leafs did. And this year, like I've said before, they're they're one of the best teams um, in the league this year and a real threat to, to make it to the Stanley Cup final. But Mike Babcock, uh, he accepted a job as the head coach of the University of Saskatchewan um, college hockey team or university hockey team, I should say, as far as Canada goes. So it's pretty crazy how he goes from an NHL coach thinking he's all big and bad. You know, he's playing these stupid little fucking games with his uh, players and all this stuff, just a complete scumbag, uh, basically from everybody that uh, has ever encountered him. Um, you know, he, he used to bully Johan Franzen, one of the best players um, of all time who had mental issues um, and, and a lot of concussions and things like that. And he would bully the shit out of him when he was in Detroit to the point where uh, Johan Franzen has come out and said he's the worst, most despicable human being Mike Babcock is um, in the world. So there's I'm not making these stories up, folks. There's a lot of stories out there where this guy is just a complete 
dick bag. Um, there's no other way to put it. Uh, but he's coaching at the University of Saskatchewan, so a swig of beer in, in hopes that uh, these college, uh, these university hockey players out in Canada, they can deal with this guy because God fucking knows whatever he's going to be, uh, you know, relaying to them and how much shit he's going to give them. These college kids, they're not even pros. Uh, some sports anniversaries I wanted to talk about. Uh, I'm going to continue to do this, um, you know, each episode where there's a significant event uh, that occurred that week in sports history. Uh, this week, there are two of them. Um, a year ago this week, uh, David Ayers, the emergency backup goalie. Uh, so for those who don't know, the emergency backup goalie, that each team in the league has one in case, you know, they could play for either team, but in case like the main goalie and the backup goalie get hurt and they need a goalie to go in so they can complete the game. Each team has backup goalies, um, an emergency backup goalie, you know, basically, um, on speed dial to date myself a little bit. I don't even know if speed dial is a thing anymore. Um, but they have an emergency goalie on standby to, um, you know, come in and play if, if necessary. And a year ago today, the emergency backup goalie <laughs> who is part of the Toronto Maple Leafs organization, he drives the Zamboni uh, for their minor league team, the Toronto Marlies. He came in in a game for, uh, and he played for the Carolina Hurricanes um, against the Maple Leafs in Toronto and got a win. This fucking guy, he's like 40 years old. He'd never played higher than like junior B, uh, which is a very low level um, junior league in Canada. Um, and he came in and he beat the Maple Leafs at home. Unbelievable. This guy, after that, he was like the biggest celebrity in sports. He was all over the Today Show. He was on uh, TV shows in, in Canada. He was on late night TV in the United States, just living the life. Um, so congratulations to him. Swig a beer for David Ayers, man. What an electric performance that was. And I can't imagine that feeling coming in off the bench. Um, or I guess coming in off the, or coming in out of the crowd. Um, not even knowing you're going to play. You're just a Zamboni driver, probably working a day job, coming in and beating the Maple Leafs in Toronto. Unbelievable. To the point where Toronto Maple Leafs fans were cheering for this guy because, I mean, what a story. Unbelievable. Like, you know what I mean? So uh, cheers to this guy. A sip of beer for him. And one of the most important uh, anniversaries in sports history this week, 41 years ago, the United States uh, Olympic team full of college athletes beat the Soviet Union in Lake Placid in 1980 um, in the semifinal game and then went on to win the gold medal. But the biggest upset in uh, sports history, in my opinion, uh, one of the best stories of all time, the uh, college athletes for the United States beating the pro Red Army Soviet team. Um, and it, it, you could ask anybody and you can watch the movie miracle, any documentary on the red army on the U S team, uh, nine times out of 10, um, the red army team would have dummy the hell out of them. And they did, they actually played an exhibition game prior to that a few days prior where the Soviet union just destroyed them. But her Brooks, uh, her Brooks, the legendary United States coach, his tactics, and uh, his philosophy and his message got through to the United States players, and they won the game. Um, just an incredible event. So swig a beer for Michael Ruzioni and the boys uh, for the United States Olympic team in 1980. And as I mentioned in the intro, I wanted to debut uh, a new segment around gambling called Gambling Brews. Um, where I'm going to give a couple picks that I think for the upcoming days uh, that people can make some money on and uh, picks I'm going to play. And you guys can hold me to it. I'm going to keep track of my record. Um, you know, 
all my buddies always tell me I have nothing but Tim luck is what they call it. Things always seem to go my way. And, you know, hey, they can keep it that way. I, I really appreciate that. I enjoy when things go my way. And um, I'm a big fan of Tim Luck. So if you want to ride the Tim Luck wave uh, Thursday night versus the Islanders, I'm taking the Boston Bruins puck line. Um, so for those who don't know what puck line or money line is, uh, puck line means basically, you know, if the favorite, if you're picking the favorite, they're minus one and a half. So basically they have to win by two goals. Um, or if they're plus one and a half, um, you know, as long as they lose by one, you win the bet. Um, and money line just is straight up. So if you bet the Bruins versus the Islanders money line, it means you're, you know, you pick the Bruins. It means all the Bruins have to do is win no matter what. Doesn't matter. It could be uh, regulation, overtime, shootout, doesn't matter. Uh, but for this week, I'm picking the Boston Bruins puck line. Uh, the one thing about hockey bets is, uh, it's nice because they have to win by two goals because it, they're usually minus one and a half uh, for the puck line. So, but a lot of times when teams are down by one at the end of the game, they pull the goaltender. So it, it's you know you have a pretty good shot of winning by two because the other team could just bank an empty netter and puck line Jesus can save you. But I'm going with uh, Bruins puck line um, against the Islanders on Thursday, and then uh, on Saturday I'm going with the Toronto money line. So Toronto to win outright against the Edmonton Oilers, and I'm betting the over. I don't know what the over is just yet. It hasn't been released. I would imagine it's probably 5.5 or 6.5. Um, I'll keep you posted. I'll post some stuff out on Twitter um, before Saturday. But Edmonton has a brutal defense, and uh, Toronto, um, their goaltender, Frederick Anderson, is injured, and um, Jake Muzzin, one of their top defensemen, is out as well. So I think that's going to be a, a high-scoring affair. So I would go with Toronto money line to win the game. They're a better team than Edmonton, and also the over. Um, so those three picks, I think those are money. So if you ride with me, you're going to win some money. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about it on the next episode and see see how it fares out. Um, I mean, with that being said, too, I wanted to mention uh, one of the new TV shows me and my wife are watching. Um, I'm the biggest Dwayne The Rock Johnson fan in the world. Uh, you know, he was one of my favorite pro wrestlers of all time. Uh, he's one of the best actors in the world, definitely one of the most successful actors in the world. He's recently come out with a new show called Young Rock, which is basically um, you know, a loosely based uh, story on his upbringing in professional wrestling as his grandfather was uh, Peter Maivia, the high chief, and his dad was uh, Rocky Soul Man Johnson. And obviously him, uh, The Rock, was the first third-generation WWF and professional wrestling superstar of all time. Um, great show. Uh, it's on NBC on Tuesday nights. Um, it's pretty crazy because 5 million people tuned into the first episode of Young Rock. Um, and basically, the premise of the show, he's kind of coming out. The first episode, He's uh, it's, it takes place in 2032, and he's uh, running for president, and he's going over his childhood and everything about how his dad had interactions with uh, wrestling legends like Andre the Giant, the Iron Sheik, so it, it's an awesome show. I really enjoyed it. But like I said, 5 million people watched it. And you could combine all the wrestling promotions probably in the world on a weekly basis. And 5 million people total aren't watching wrestling. So it's pretty crazy to see. Uh, and the last thing I want to mention on this podcast uh, was some horrific news that Tiger Woods, the legend, the greatest of all time, um, was involved in a horrible car accident. Uh, where he suffered two broken legs at least in a uh, completely shattered ankle amongst some other injuries uh, where some of the people in um, the Los Angeles Fire Department, Police Department, have said that he was lucky to be alive. 
Um, we really hope, uh, on behalf of the Rambling Bruce podcast, I hope uh, that Tiger Woods has a full recovery. I've seen some reports where it's too early to, to determine yet, but some people are saying that you know his golf career might be in jeopardy. But at the end of the day, I'm just hoping that he can recover fully and be able to walk and be able to... Uh, you know, live his life again. And we, we hope that he has a speedy recovery and recovers fully. You never want to see that obviously. And, uh, you know, we want to, we want to send our thoughts and our prayers and our best wishes out to Tiger Woods to, to get well. Um, with that being said, grab a couple Coors Lights, crack them, have a hell of a weekend. And remember, if I don't see you around here, I'll see you around here. Never broke